0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DEI and people analytics. And I'm known around here as the sidekick to one Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, great to see you. Thanks for having me along. What's going on?
1: Hi, Rob. Sidekick, huh?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm the Ed McMahon to your Johnny Carson. Little dated, you know, little dated you reference. Know,
1: every time somebody uses the word sidekick, do you know what immediately comes to my brain?
0: The Suzuki Sidekick, the car. No.
1: Yes, the the, the <laughs> car, the cart. That's like right. So like I'm driving either like what a motorcycle or a car, and then like, they're in the little side. Oh. <laughs> and you're like a oh. little side part next to
0: it. The...
1: <laughs> Maybe somebody that's, can draw that for us.
0: That's the image you have. That's the next the logo. Well, that's exactly what it will be. Just mark that down. Nadia, I had a question for you. I was just wondering, like, you know, it's starting to get a little bit of a nip here, a little, little, little chilly. Mm-hmm.
1: So when
0: does fall start for you? When is the? How do How do you mark fall?
1: Well, I think how I mark fall is different from how other people mark fall because, in my hand, as we are speaking, is a Dunkin' Donuts pumpkin mm-hmm. spice latte. Yep. yep. Um, I think people mark fall by when <laughs> pumpkin spice lattes are available in either Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. I mark it so by like early August.
0: Early like August. Ar- actually <laughs>
1: some of these some of these places are like in Boston year probably round early August. Yeah. yeah. Um I mark it when the temperature starts to drop. So Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like you can just feel like this crispness in the air if that makes sense. So it's starting to get a little bit cooler you can definitely start to see, like, the leaves will start to change. So that's when I start to say that's fall. I, I started saying it was fall, like, September 1st.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Septem- yeah, yeah. Some people say September. Some people wait till the end. Yeah. Uh, I just saw I, – I had that question because I saw some Halloween decorations on a neighbor's lawn. And – I, I was thinking, wow, they're they're really they're re- they're ready to go. They're they're a little yeah, bit early. That's for aggressive. Me. Well, yeah. somebody
1: was saying that they went to Costco. I was doing a workshop, and somebody in the workshop said there's already Christmas decor out. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, that's about right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fast forward everything. <laughs> yeah. Right? Just go. Things should move faster in life, right?
1: Yeah, of course. Well, Rob, I'm excited for this week because this week on Inclusive Collective, we'll be talking to Dr. Peter Huang a retired professor and author of the book Disrupting Racism, uh, things of, you know, our favorite topics here. We'll also discuss former Rolling Stone editor and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame founder Jan Wenner's comments about women and BIPOC musicians and talk about Black America's favorite college football team, the Colorado Buffaloes, and later we'll be ranting and raving about the city of Boston and my favorite, sports.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Sounds great. But first, Nadia, yeah, you know what time it is. Can I get two minutes? All right. So this is something that's that I've heard a couple of times recently. I'm at a company or someone who runs a company or or leader at a company saying that, hey, we're somewhat new to DEI. I hear from my peers that at their companies, they have something called a DEI committee.
1: Uh, yeah. All right.
0: So uh-huh. tell me, Nadia, give me two minutes on what does a committee make you know? When does that make sense? What does a committee do? When does it make sense? What do they need in order to be successful?
1: Yeah, when I will say, it really all depends on the organization, right? Sure. Um, so part of embedding diversity, equity, inclusion into the company culture should really include involving employees, and that means involving folks from different levels, departments, demographics. Really, in and what they're doing is helping and designing. In participating in, in the different structures and initiatives and goals, right? Um, I think this recognizes the importance of participation mm-hmm. and and the voice of the employee in creating a successful inclusive culture, right? So then the next question is like, well, what do they do? So they, you know, the the DEI committee, if organizations decide to move forward with them and develop and form one, then they really typically are there to organize and maintain. The DEI initiatives in the company. Okay. So they form around common goals that were identified. They may include smaller subcommittees that are focused on um, various parts of DEI work to, to really push things uh, forward, really focus work, um, of course, on specific topics. And then um, I think that overall, like overall, the committees can really help to bridge the gap between the current state and the future state. Moving um, forward uh, goals. I think also, though, what's what it's, it's the DEI committees are created to really help uh, organizations stay accountable to what they put in place as goals. So it's less lip service, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. really taking more steps to sustainable employee directed change where where DEI committees can fall short are a few mm-hmm. things. So the first is like the leadership, the lack of leadership commitment and accountability or sponsorship. Um the second could be like requiring participation especially from people from with marginalized identities because that can further perpetuate burnout or exclusion or tokenism. Mm-hmm. Um and then you know the third is is the limited scope on diversity. DEI committees really should challenge their thinking and expand their perspectives of what the definition of diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to the organization. So mm-hmm. that might be, you know, expanding our thoughts on like including people like the elderly, socio-economic background, you know, disadvantages or people that come from that background, pregnant people, neurodivergent people, people um, where English is a second language, or even folks from certain different religious backgrounds. And then finally, I think that um, DEI committees should. You know, it should not be a check the box activity Mm -hmm. or mentality, really understanding that the role of the committee is critical when it's formed. And so aligning on its purpose and its why Mm -hmm. it's a great opportunity for the organization to have employees. I almost like to call it like a think tank, Mm -hmm. like it's a big brainstorming session to really pull um, ideas from the employees to really put them into action mode. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I think the key here is that it's a mechanism to support accountability.
0: Thank you for that, Nadia. Appreciate those two minutes. And let's get to the deets. What do you got for us?
1: Well, so Jan Wenner, the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, recently said that black and women musicians didn't quote unquote articulate rock music philosophy well enough to be included in his new book that was released. Mm -hmm. Wenner was asked by the New York Times um, why his new book of classic interviews with musicians called um, Only Included White Men. And he said quote, insofar as women I mean they were just none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. Um, The interviewer from the New York Times pushed back on winner um and he further than stated of black artists they just didn't articulate at that level
0: mm, okay
1: interesting <laughs> um but, and i'll just say that here that of course the backlash was resounding right like criticisms of winner um i think for many folks goes further than just his book um historically you know There are critics saying that the Rolling Stone magazine and other kind of, they're calling it like gatekeeper culture, Mm -hmm. um, where people have historically excluded or minimized the achievements of women and people of color, um, really kind of highlighting the longstanding racial inequities in the music business. Your thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, one, I like the way that you read the quote from uh mr winner with disdain yeah and then i was like well your dramatic reading like sounded like how you felt about the quote so there's that i had Um, the exact same thought about gatekeeping right so i thought about how so much of our tastes are made by people like mr winner right so taylor swift wouldn't be taylor swift unless someone like mr winner tells you that you need to pay attention right and so that was even more the case over his 40-year reign at Rolling Stone, right? So that was a very big deal, right? Yes. That was when it was at the height of its influence. He was the editor. uh, Rolling Stone cover was the sign of making it as an artist. And so this was the person that was deciding in that position of power, who deserved to be heard, who deserved that spotlight. And so we can see how one person, it's a great example, I can see one person in a position of power and that person's identity can then influence what the rest of us are going to see in the world. And so it makes me think about how many artists you know, didn't make it because this person had a white male influence and worldview and wielded that power, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, yeah, it's just, it's really really fascinating, and I think that in terms of what happened to Mister Winner, I think that you know everything was totally appropriate. I actually thought that the apology that he made—I don't know if you saw
1: it—seemed
0: mm-hmm. seemed like he must have a handle on the culture, right? So he must know immediately that he made a terrible mistake. Yeah, I thought that the apology was was pretty good, and he lost his lost his his role on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think that yeah. was appropriate as well, and so yeah, I think it's really- uh, it's a really just it, I thought it was just really a good example of cultural gatekeeping and something that we should all be pretty tuned into.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you for mentioning his apology, and then of course the the removal of his status at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation. Um, I actually, I went into a rabbit hole about this. So thank you for sharing the story. So I I do, I do think it's important for us to recognize the contributions of black and women musicians. And I found a quote that I want to share with folks. So Daphne Brooks, a professor of African American studies at Yale said, Wenner's racially coded language undermined the brilliance of black musicians, especially black women the music has always been steeped in intellectualism. If we think of its form of historical, political and social expression, this has been the case since the enslaved were scoring their own music as coded language in order to survive. That's carried forward to the blues and jazz into rock and roll. And then she also added for him to know that and not be able to recognize the complexities of black intellectualism built into music as a problem. Mm. That just like, I re I'm rereading it and I'm getting the chills because I feel like that really holds true. Um, And then, you know, I was thinking about his apology and what you said. And, you know, the question is, like, can he redeem himself or is it too late? And then it made me think of like, Rob, you and I should start a segment that's called redeemable or not. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we just go through people who make really stupid comments. And then we're like, can this is this redeemable?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think the start of that uh, of, uh, you know, the first hoop that you have to jump through in order to be considered to be redeemable is to understand what you said. And so I think that that's so that's where at least in the statement and, you know, uh, who knows who wrote the statement? I would imagine he did because he's a a writer and uh, at least it sounded like, okay that was terrible. That was awful. And I, you know, I fully accept it and take responsibility for it. So, right, right. that's the first. Seg- that's the first part of, of the segment. But I love the segment. I love this right? idea. Yeah. Redeemable yeah. Yeah. or not? Redeemable Maybe that's season redeemable. five.
1: We'll have to think about it. Yeah. I, know,
0: I know. That could be a whole podcast, right? I
1: know. So, what do you got for us this week? All right.
0: So, next story, Nadia. Hold on. I have this. I have props for this. Hold on. Oh. You're, you're gonna see. All right. There you go. <laughs>
1: Oh, sunglasses and hat. All right. right.
0: So I would say, Nadia, that this is already one of my favorite episodes of Inclusive Collective because we get to talk about both Black America and Rob Hadley's favorite college football team. And that's Ah. right. The Colorado Buffaloes. Okay. All right. So um, and no, this is not a this is not a new hat. Right. There's a lot of sweat stains on this hat. There's a lot of of tears on this hat. So. um, All right. So. As you probably know, Coach Dion Primetime Sanders, first season, yes. is the head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes. He's led them to a national ranking. Celebrities like Snoop Dogg and The Rock and the Wu Tang Clan have come to Colorado games. LeBron James is live tweeting the games. Black households have tuned into these games, uh, Colorado games, at a record rate, leading to some of the highest rated college football games uh, ever on TV. All of this oh, for man. a school that is 5% black. In a city of Boulder, Colorado, that is only one percent black. So, Nadia, before I give my two, my thoughts, and you could tell yeah. I have many.
1: Yeah. What,
0: are you on board? Are you on board with my Colorado Buffaloes?
1: I, you know, I, you know, me in sports, and so I have questions for you. So, because we, not all our listeners are into sports. Like, really,
0: really? I don't okay. think so. So, right.
1: Colorado is it University of Colorado or is this like Colorado State?
0: It's Colorado you know, yes, I'm, University. Yes. University of Colorado. I'm going to pretend. I'm going to pretend you didn't ask that. But yes, okay. So, okay. And
1: then I think. How wonderful to think of the lack of representation that's probably in those communities and then definitely at the school, like you just said, this is great. Like more opportunity. I love the hype around it. I will also just add that like in addition to your hat and to your sunglasses that you wear, I feel like I gotta get you the hoodie that apparently oh, in the article yes. I read, it, it's there's there's a hoodie that says we coming. I'm getting that for you <laughs> Christmas time, baby.
0: That is yes, my both of my parents have. Uh, I believe T-shirts that they sent me a picture of this week, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll put that in the uh, in the Instagram feed, sure. right? So, so yeah, I, I definitely am on the same page in terms of representation. So the the there's a very complicated history of the relationship between Black African American athletes and the University of Colorado. So that's so that's my school. That's where I went to undergrad, okay. um, and in particular in the football team. So mm-hmm. I had lunch with someone earlier this year who does DEI at the University of Colorado, and I was talking about the fact that I was worried because of some of the history of that program. That said, mm-hmm. the, there are no other big football programs like Colorado that's hired as many Black head coaches, right? So four of the last five head coaches there uh, have been Black, uh, including the last three, so no other school has done anything like that. Mm-hmm. And you can see the adoption, as you said, because this is a prominent Black figure, a Hall of Fame player, broadcaster, and there is a severe lack of representation at that level, at that elite mm-hmm. level in college football. So um, he also doesn't run from who he is. He's very hip hop. He is mm-hmm. very religious, right? So in, so in a very white town, in a very secular town, mm-hmm. there's this authentic piece of leadership here. And and, I, and and something to keep watch of is this is essentially a business story as well. So the football team was essentially broke and going out of It was essentially oh. a business that was going out of business, right? Yeah, they had, right. had no success. They did something dramatic in terms of a turnaround, and he turned over the roster. He was at an HBCU uh, okay. previously, and so he came and he told the kids there that were previously there that they didn't appreciate all that they had, and they, they didn't appreciate the privilege that they had, and that he was going to bring kids in that appreciated what, what you know with the opportunity. Uh, he also said he didn't believe in culture, uh, that he just wanted good players, but everything he has done since has been about culture, about accountability. He wants his kids to be good citizens. In that community. So um, you're starting yeah. to also see like an, a grumbling from the old guard of college football where people are saying, well, he's doing of things course. too fast. There's he's, change. He's yeah. taking shortcuts. Um, and every one of them, if they had the ability to do what he was doing, they would absolutely do it. So mm. this is not just a sports story. This is a cultural story. This is a business story. And it's fascinating. And I'm just
1: so are folks watching so happy. this story in the college football world? Like this is something
0: that's. This folks is probably the watching. biggest story in all of sports, not just wow. college. Wow. Yeah.
1: You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> and, I,
0: and I'm sure you knew that, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, thanks for sharing, Rob. That's great. Thank you for the, the um, excitement around it, too. All right, folks. Well, that's it for the Deeds. We'll be right back with professor and author, Dr. Peter Huang. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer.
0: As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Huang. Dr. Peter Henry Huang is an author utilizing his experiences as a mathematical economist, economics professor, and law professor to help address problems our society currently faces. His research includes analyzing how to boost people's decision-making skills by practicing mindfulness, helpful thinking styles, and cognitive diversity. Dr. Huang graduated at 17 from Princeton. He earned an applied mathematics PhD from Harvard. Dr. Huang is a JD with distinction from Stanford. He publishes about anti-discrimination, leadership, mindfulness, stakeholder capitalism, and social justice. Earlier this year, Dr. Huang released his new book, Disrupting Racism, Essays by an Asian American prodigy professor, available now wherever you buy books. Dr. Peter Huang, welcome to Inclusive Collective. So great to have you. Thank you. Uh, Great to be here.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm fascinated by practicing mindfulness and making the connection to decision making. Um, Can you elaborate more on this and how this may play out in the workplace as it relates to leaders?
2: So the first thing I guess to do is define mindfulness. So John Kabat-Zinn defines mindfulness as sort of just a curious observation of the present moment of the world without judgment, which is a hard thing for lawyers to do. Um, so it's sort of, a you know, non-judgmental, almost like stepping out and seeing what's happening and realize what's happening is, uh, like anything not permanent, right? So mm-hmm. if you have thoughts of anger, you can look at them and say, that's, I, I'm not angered, that's, that's an emotion, which I may feel now. I may not feel that later and, and just let it go. So one idea people use is like clouds in the sky. So the idea is that mindfulness is something that helps people make decisions because a lot of decisions we make are sort of on autopilot, um, And that's yeah. not necessarily bad. It's just that you know, we, we have limited cognitive resources. So for certain things that aren't important, it's okay to not necessarily pay attention. But part of my influence is to know which decisions are important. And uh, I've written in particular about ethics. So you may not even know there's an ethical issue because it doesn't come flashing to you saying, this is legal ethics or this is an ethical, a uh, moral uh, problem. For example, if you say securities fraud, you realize that's, that's bad. But if you say cosmetic County, that doesn't sound as bad, right? So part mm. of it is to realize there's an ethical problem. And then the idea of mindfulness is to think about looking at it from different perspectives and saying, you know, what are um, other people going to feel um, in the moment and later on? And can I think of doing something that's sustainable, that's ethical? Because presumably, if you do something unethical, you may get caught. I mean, prison is full of people who thought they would not get caught, right? So you have to think about how any action you take, any decision you make will make you feel, say, in 10 minutes, 10 months, and 10 years. Mm -hmm. Suppose someone cuts me off Mm -hmm. uh, on the freeway. I might want to speed up and cut them off so I'll feel good in 10 minutes. But suppose I cause an accident, then I'll be very sad, especially if the accident kills someone. Then it's going to be lasting, I mean, for 10 years. So that's sort of one of the ideas of mindfulness is to sort of think about more alternatives, think about options, think about how what you do affects you, affects other people. And there's evidence that people who make mindful decisions tend to make more ethical ones. There's also evidence that people who practice mindfulness tend to have less implicit bias. Mm. Oh,
1: I was just going to ask that. Yeah. I was just thinking that in terms of mitigating bias, is mindfulness practice um, something that folks would recommend to help think through those implicit or unconscious biases?
2: Yeah. There's research showing that practicing mindfulness not only reduces implicit bias, but actually uh, reduces racist actions, which is what uh, mm-hmm. the law and society cares about more. You can think whatever you want in your brain, as long as you don't do something about it. But to actually commit a racist act, mindfulness helps you do that less. Um, Mindfulness helps you, I think, to be more empathetic. They did an experiment where people who had practiced mindfulness were sitting in a room waiting for something, like, say, a doctor. And someone came in on crutches. And no one else got out of their seats because they were confederates of the experimenter. The people who practiced mindfulness were more likely to get up and say, why don't you take my seat? Not all of them, but there was a higher number than people who – majority. Yeah. And so I think that's one idea is to think about how other people feel, and then you might do things that are different than if you sort of have a knee-jerk reaction that's on autopilot that's not um, having thought before. So I'll give you another way to remember this. One of my nephews, when he was, I think, six or seven, he was acting up, and my partner said, you know what, You you need a timeout. He goes, no, 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 I learned about this in school. I need to go hesitate. And what he learned learn? school is to go meditate What he could that oh, with meditate. Meditate. <laughs> The idea of meditation is you no know, stop, yeah. hesitate. So,
1: Oh, that's so wonderful. Thank you for sharing that.
0: I want to talk about the book a little bit. It's a great read. Um, and so it's, you know, it's 2023. Yeah, I think you've retired from academic life. And your way to unwind was to release this book that's part personal story. Uh, part deep dive into the problems of racism, applying economic, legal, mathematical concepts, and you do it all with a lot of humor. So where does this ambitious project come from? I I guess the thing I was thinking is you could have picked an easier book to write. You tackle a lot in this book. And so where does this come from and why
2: did you want to pursue it? So, yeah, that's a great question. It it actually happened when um, my partner said to me after George Floyd was murdered and there were a lot of protests across the country She goes, why don't you write something about that, about racism? I said, oh, people have studied racism already in law with hate crimes. People have studied racism already in economics when they talk about, um, well, there's different models of racism. One is people have just preferences. They don't like to be with certain types of people, like orange people don't like purple people or something. And firms are not racist, but they might cater to their customers' racist preferences, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, another view is that racism is really due to lack of information or asymmetric information or private information. So employers can't tell how productive you are, but they can tell from a sample of people how productive people are on average. So if they hire a lot of white people, they might say, oh, these people are productive. If they never hire uh, a green person, then they can, have think of, they can have any kinds of beliefs about green people because they have no discovering evidence. Um, so, for example, when certain black athletes broke into, I think, football or baseball, that was like, a big deal, right? Because they were the first one. And if you have beliefs that are racist or sexist, you might behave in such a way as a firm or an employer to cause occupational segregation so that some people, women and minorities, never get to do certain things like be on corporate boards or, you know, or if they're there, they're the token one. There's only one of them. So um, I thought, okay, let me explore this more. And I wrote several articles because it was actually much more complicated than I thought. But I was trying to think of racism as like a problem, like a math problem. How mm-hmm. would you solve it? So what I really came to the conclusion that racism is basically mistaken beliefs. You form beliefs that are conditional of a person's race, the amount of melatonin mel- mel- in their skin. And you say, oh, I think Chinese people don't make great leaders. I think they're great followers. That's a belief, but it's mistaken. And the mm-hmm. question is, why don't you change your beliefs, right? One is you don't get any evidence. You don't hire any Chinese people, so you don't know. Another is some Chinese people are productive and and good leaders, but you say, oh, that's atypical. Um, So you're stubborn. You wanna hold on to your beliefs. Um, I forget who said this, but a political scientist said, people's beliefs are like their possessions. They don't wanna give them up. And Mm -hmm. another person said, beliefs are like babies. If you attack my beliefs, you're attacking my child, right? So, So people might hold their beliefs because Their identity is associated with their beliefs. If everyone in their family, all their friends have this belief, they may find it hard to give it up. So one of the questions is why don't people want information? And there's been some recent work about this, which is in decision theory or in economics and law, um, the idea is that more information helps you make a better decision. The problem with that is people often don't want to make a better decision if the information is emotionally upsetting so for example there are people who will take a test for the uh brca1 gene for breast cancer or take a test for aids they might even pay a copay but they won't come back and find out the result because as long as they don't know they can there's hope they could believe that they uh-huh. don't have the disease mm-hmm. so it's interesting how people don't always want information um because it's the, there's an emotional valence information there's also an identity aspect to information And the third um, aspect or uh, dimension of information is how it helps you make better decisions. So of these three, people put different weights on them and at different times, Mm -hmm. right, for different kinds of information. And that explains why certain information is hard for people to um, adopt, right? If everyone in your sort of circle believes in certain things, then you might have to believe in them. Otherwise, people will ostracize you. Mm -hmm. So... um, yeah, I mean, so it's an interesting way to think about racism as people are making a mistake in their beliefs and they may not want to change it. So the so the challenge is in how can we help them see um, the correct beliefs, right. right? And some of the answers are already ones that people have tried, which is um, you want people to work together. You want people to be on a team. You want people to see that you want the orange people to see that the purple people could help me win a game or build something, right? Now, you, you want them not to compete because then they don't get the idea. They, they view them as sort of enemies or um, the other. You want them to sort of work on things together. So they say, oh, you're like me or with you, I can do better. Um, another is to inject humor, right? Because humor is a way to sort of diffuse situations uh, like in science fiction or like something else so that people see analogies um, and say, well, that person's silly. And then they realize, oh, that person's like me, right? So this is not such a bad thing. Um, and another is right. to create more positive, um, cultures in organizations or society. Um, and the last one is to, um, help people talk better. There's a woman at uh, Harvard business school who teaches a course on how to talk good <laughs> <And the laughs> that, yeah. uh, people Very, often don't like know how to or, talk yeah. yeah, and they don't actively, they don't listen, right? As lawyers, especially as you talk, I'm thinking of how to demolish your arguments. Um, instead Mm -hmm. of actually listening to you. So that's, again, part of the empathy, part of the mindfulness. And and, on, you know, we wanna talk for connection sometimes, not just for information or to uh, convey facts. We wanna sort of uh, connect with people, relationships. That's a lot of the reason people talk.
1: Dr. Huang, I'm just curious. I've kind of a two-part question here is, the first is who do you hope that this book reaches And and I guess in terms of, like, audience, if you were to think about that. And then what are the considerations that you want folks to reflect on after reading your book?
2: Okay, that's a good uh, pair of questions, which my editor asked me.
1: Maybe that's my new new job. To have a future.
2: (laughs) As a publisher. (laughs) Actually, there were three chapters that my editor took out. One was on um, women leaders, especially during COVID. Another was on education, and the last one was on corporate greed, Um, Mm. and I I really think greed is actually the uh, motivating force of racism, uh, you know, free labor, viewing the people who you enslave as not really human or something, Um, so the corporate greed was related to the idea of climate change, or I like to say the word climate catastrophe. but he thought those are each separate books, so you know, I have my next three books. All right, yeah. there That's we go. Right. Yeah, uh, list. I think, I think the ideal audience for this book is someone who's um, curious about public policy, and sees our society, American society, is being very right now polarized and divisive, and is interested in how to sort of return to. Uh, a time when people were actually able to talk to each other despite their political differences or differences in beliefs. I, I'm i not sure someone who's a, a, you know, raging, seething racist, if there's such people, um, you know, very hateful person, I'm not sure they will sit down and read this book. Um, I think a lot of people who are not racist will read this book, but that's like preaching to the converted. Um, I think part of the idea is the people who are not racist will say, okay, now I understand racism a little bit better. And I understand maybe some ways to diffuse or disrupt racism. It may not end racism, but it'll sort of interrupt it. Like one idea is to help people be more mindful. They might be less racist, right? So that's, I think the audience is the audience of people who are in agreement that racism is a bad thing. It should be disrupted, but are not sure how to do it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I want to talk about, so. Uh, that humor piece as well a little bit, right? So yeah. one of the reasons that I can highly recommend this book unequivocally is that you have a chapter about humor and then um, and how to use humor to mitigate nonviolent racism. And so you allude in the book to this 1984 Eddie Murphy sketch on Saturday Night Live, right? And so that's, you know, for me, right? So that particular clip, so a young white kid growing up in suburban Denver, you know, you have no idea what's happening. Out in the real world, right, what's actually happened. You see that sketch and you're like, okay, racism, white supremacy, I get it, right? I, it's a real thing. It's powerful. And so, you know, so talk about the importance of humor in, uh, in helping people understand racism.
2: Yeah, I forget who's I think it's the person who did, uh, was it Super Size V or something where he ate like McDonald's things every day? And he said, <laughs> oh, right. Morgan Spurlock, yeah. right? Yes. And he said, if you can get people to laugh, you can get people to pay attention. Right? So part of the idea is that there's an overflow of information or misinformation or, um, disinformation these days. So we can't possibly pay attention to everything. So the things you pay attention to have to somehow be salient. And one way to be salient is to be funny, right? Whenever someone's funny that, you know, you sort of put your guard down and you go, yeah, that is hilarious. This person's funny. Let me listen more to that. And you may learn something without really, um, intending to, right? The other thing is that everyone, I think, understands what humor is, although there are differences, right, Um, across cultures and, you know, exactly what is funny. Um, But I think it perhaps bonds people, right? It makes people uh, see that the other person um, has a sense of humor, isn't too serious about themselves, and they change it. But it used to be, if you ask um, S-I-R-I, what is zero divided by zero? The answer would give you is let's see zero divided by zero. Suppose you have zero friends and you want to divide zero cookies. That doesn't make sense. And <laughs> by the way, how sad it is that you have zero friends. How does this happen? We get very serious, like a therapy session. Right. I think humor lets, um, uh, People let their guard down. People may be more receptive to information or to changing their beliefs, um, but it doesn't work if someone's gonna, you know, hit you on the head with a bat. So it's not mm-hmm. like you should tell a joke to a white supremacist and they'll say, oh, you're a comedian, okay? So yes. Jenny Yang, um, when Andrew Yang suggested we should be more patriotic, that Asians should show Americans that they're really true Americans. She went into Pasadena with the American flag and had rags dressing and um just <laughs> to people i really love this country here's my transcript i got all a's i can help you uh <laughs> and 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 um basically show how silly some, sometimes that is um that you know the people you're talking to in a situation you're talking to is one maybe there's violence humor is not going to solve that problem right but if it's yep. a non-violent kind of racism then i think humor has a chance of. Um, getting people to stop and listen. Because I think the idea is that racism is kind of mindless. It's not really thinking of the person as an individual. It's saying, I'm just using your skin color to judge you. That's all I need to know about you. That's clearly false. And that's clearly not um, a good way to judge people. I forget who said this, Um, another comedian, he goes, you know, they're good people of any race or ethnicity. They're also bad people, right? For every mother Teresa, there's, you know, someone who's bad for every, uh, Gandhi, there's a Hitler, right? So every race and ethnicity has good and bad people, has a distribution of people qualities. And in some sense, if you think of people as high dimensional, um, points in, in a space of characteristics that change, their race or ethnicity doesn't tell you much about them, um, at all, right. Because they're good and bad people of that race or ethnicity. Um, so what you need to do is learn more about the person as an individual right? You want to pay more attention to them. You don't want to sort of just judge them by the color of their skin, which is basically stereotyping, right? You don't want to do that because that's not a helpful decision heuristic. It's actually easy to do, but it's wrong. (laughs) It's not correct. Um, Yeah.
1: I really appreciate that bringing humor to certain conversations. I think especially if there's already trust established and So I really appreciate that. Um, So, Dr. Wong, we ask all our guests, is there um, um, a resource that you would want to recommend to our listeners that's related to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And of course, disrupting (laughs) racism essays by an Asian American prodigy professor is is one of them. Is there an additional one that you'd love to share with folks?
2: Uh, Oh, by the way, I'm not responsible for the subtitle. Because my partner said, what is a prodigy <laughs> professor? I said, I yeah, don't know. Tell, actually, why don't you what share that saying, really quickly? I'm like, curious. Prodigy. And then someone said, no, once you're a prodigy, you're always a prodigy. Like Mozart was always a prodigy. I <laughs> said, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I said, I was a child prodigy, maybe still a child. No, <laughs> longer a
0: prodigy. Well, you know, so, just in, in, in line with the book, right? So you really start with your own experiences, you know, right. talking about starting at Princeton at 13 or 14, but living on campus by yourself, there's some... There's some really heartbreaking stories in there about going through that experience, you're, right? You're living on campus, you're by yourself, away from your family at that age. And so, and so even, you know, you, you share in the book that a lot of the stuff that is there you had never really shared or talked about before. And so, so yeah, talk a little bit about what that experience was like.
2: So I went at 14 um, and um, my, my parents, I think it was actually my tiger mom, did not want me to, she wrote a letter to the Diva student saying, My son, Peter, is very uh, innocent. I don't want to be exposed to sex, rock and roll, or drugs. I don't know if it's in that order. (laughs) So instead of being in a a suite with uh, five or six other people, I had a single room. I don't know what other people thought. Like, is he a leper? Or, you know, what did they think of me? And in my room, I had Winnie the Pooh sheets. The other pair of sheets was uh, Charlie Brown sheets on my bed. And then I had a little bookcase uh, with every single required and recommended text for the courses I was taking. And um I had to keep a diary of the money and how I spent it. Um, it was, I mean, there are people who go to college at 17 or 18 who don't look like they're 14. So I didn't go around telling people, I'm 14, how are you? Uh, but still, <laughs> it was very lonely. I remember crying when my parents cut me off. Um, and 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 you're not gonna ask a girl who's 18 on a date and say, hi. Let's go, let's go out. Can you drive? Because I don't know how to ride a bicycle or drive.
0: Mm. <laughs> so
2: um, I wouldn't recommend it. My mother, I think, meant well. Um, there's a story. Um, she, I was at Horace Mann, which is a prep school in Riverdale. And uh, at that time, it was not co-ed. But I had a crush on my eighth grade math teacher, and I was writing her poems uh, in German. For Valentine's, they gave her the equation of polar coordinates for her heart. My mother found this out and she thought, my goodness, he's not, he's being distracted. He's not studying. Between 8th <laughs> and ninth grade, she took me to NYU and I audited Calc 1 and um, Pre-Calc at the same time. And the professor said, wrote, wrote to him a concern letter saying he would have gotten an N.A. Then I was allowed to take Calc 2 for credit. So when I went back to ninth grade, there's no math I can take. So she succeeded in her goal of uh, getting me to uh, not be able to be with the person I had a crush on. But, but, um, oh, wow. You know, my, my two brothers have daughters and they're at the age where, um, they might go to college for And, and my mother is, is I think a tiger grandma. She's now sort of <laughs> <laughs> suggesting that I don't have any children. I'm sure if I had children, she would be doing that. And my partner says, well, you know, if, if she pushes that, I would, I would certainly have a talk with her. I said, I will buy tickets to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Right. Well, my partner wants yes. to goes, your mother would like me more if instead of being um, a Dominican Republic OBGYN who went to Harvard, I was a uh, Chinese uh, neurosurgeon or cardiac surgeon who played the piano and the violin and um, spoke Mandarin perfectly. I said, yes, that's true. But I don't know why you want to date my mother. Oh. Uh-
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, so. that's incredible. Well, yep.
0: Dr. Peter Huang, we agree with your publisher. You're still a prodigy to us, and uh, we really, really appreciate you joining us today on Inclusive Collective. Come back and see us when you write the follow-up. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to I read the one on, uh, on greed and uh, capitalism, so yeah,
2: that's the one I'm looking markets. for. Thanks so yeah, much. Such a pleasure Thank having you. you on. It was fun to be here.
1: Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with our calm reflections and raves and rants. Welcome back, folks. So we just finished chatting with Dr. Peter Wong, author of Disrupting Racism, Essays by an Asian-American Prodigy Professor, Rob. He was so funny. He's a, really, he's a delight, huh?
0: He's even more um, funny, yeah, off, ca- off camera, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Off, off podcast, yeah, off recording. Um, do you have any reflections on the conversation that we had?
0: My first one... Nadia was I'm looking at at myself and I have like, what, like eight books in the background here. And so I need a lot more books because Dr. Huang has about 4,000 behind him. So I don't know if that's a result of being a prodigy or if that's how you get to become a prodigy, but either way, I'm way behind Dr. Huang. So um, I think that I was really glad you jumped in and did mindfulness right away because I think Mm. when when I'm working with clients and we're talking about implicit bias, and we talk about interrupting bias in processes. What we always say, you know, in, in pretty much every application, the way that you uh, that, that you disrupt bias is by taking a step back and slowing things down and starting to think about it. And so, I thought that was a really nice uh, way to start the conversation and, and a good reminder for me that some of the things that we're doing are actually rooted in in uh, in mindfulness.
1: Agree. I mean, that's my takeaway is, like, I really appreciated that um, connection. Um, So, as you know, I'm certified in MBSR, um, Mm. mindfulness-based stress reduction. And really just my whole goal when getting certified in that was really to connect how to slow down your mind, body, and soul so that you can mitigate bias because bias comes up, um, you know, really high stress times most times and in your decision making and interactions um so yeah love that also really appreciate his story um just from being a prodigy so um folks definitely go get the book um read it and um, we thank dr huang in joining us
0: yeah there's so many great pop culture movie book song references (laughs) in that book so yeah it's really it's really fun quick read so definitely recommend it so Nadia, it is time to rant and rave. Are you ready? I you, am. You're gonna, go, you're gonna go ahead and rant for us.
1: I'm ranting this week. Um, Rob, we're back to the your favorite topic, sports.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs>
1: um, so it's fall. We mentioned earlier that means it's pumpkin spice latte. Bringing it back full circle here. Um, and football time. So, what did the NFL do this time? So I don't know all of these like. People, these players, football <laughs> fans, um, likely, you know, just I, I'm going to go slow because I think this particular instance is better than daytime drama, I think. Jim Trotter, who previously worked for NFL media, filed the discrimination and retaliation lawsuit against the NFL. And in his former company, he claims that he repeatedly called out the league for not addressing longstanding institutional discrimination within the coaching ranks, um, the NFL league office in the NFL media newsroom. And then later, it effect- he claims that it affected his own employment. So there's a whole story there. I'm not going to go down at like a deets here. But um, the name like Roger Goodell came up. And I know I'm in New England. So a lot of people don't like him <laughs> um, where I'm seated. And then Jerry Jones's name came up and Terry Pagula. And just all of these different types of conversations of people making comments around discrimination. Um, and so, you know, it's just these allegations are really just another reason why i dislike the nfl
0: okay yeah no there's worked. a there's a, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> your rant is the nfl is bad yeah <laughs> tough to yeah, tough to I argue against wa- it
1: I, listen i stopped watching it after how they treated Colin cape Ka- kaepernick and even prior to that with all some of the um abuse that was happening and I just i think that there's could be a lot better leadership but that's being said. That's I a think whole. That other... is a
0: very fair point. There could be better leadership there. So let's talk about good leadership, right? So let's rave about our friends in Boston, down at City Hall, and uh, so Bostonians will no longer have to identify their gender when applying for a marriage license. That's the headline. But I think the cool thing here is that the city launched a gender aware guidelines and standards uh, campaign, or uh, some, you know, I guess I guess their guidelines and standards, right? To improve inclusion in communication with residents so Michelle uh Mayor Michelle Wu whose sister used to babysit my son actually Nadia, right so talk about that degree of separation yeah no. she uh said that this is a big step in building a more inclusive city so well done Mayor Wu she's such a star isn't she Dude, Nadia, she you is like, you like Mayor love Wu? Her. star
1: love absolute Mayor star Pierre. so let's try to yeah. get her on the pod
0: yeah, yeah. I think I think going through uh, the old babysitter, that's, that's one way to get it done, right?
1: That is. Yep.
0: All right, Nadia, thanks so much. That's it for Inclusive Collective. Just a reminder that if you're looking for DEI and workplace culture strategy consulting, problem solving, or training, you can reach out to Nadia at Nadia at NazConsultants.com and Rob at Rob at com. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media and edited by Ari Mathay. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your feedback at refillion.com. Please check us out on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And be sure to make sure that you're following up on uh, LinkedIn because you can also subscribe to our IC monthly newsletter. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate. And uh, you can check us out wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Peter Huang. We'll be back next week. Bye, Nadia.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs>